0: Snuff Production. This is Global Truths with Dr. Keith Souter. He is the man who knows everything about everything that is going on in the world. That is why he hosts this podcast. Every week we delve into an issue internationally that is unfolding and he breaks it down for us and makes us understand it in layman's terms. Three PhDs, if you don't mind. He's been a commentator on this stuff in terms of media in Australia for decades now and an absolute guru on the issues and very good at breaking it down and explaining it properly. And my name's Kate Mack. I produce this and um, I've been in radio and TV as a producer and announcer for many years. And I've known Keith for quite a long time <laughs> now as well. So good <laughs> cool little team. Um, today we're going to talk about epidemics. Coronavirus is just you know still around it is still making everyone very nervous but it's not the first epidemic keith or pandemic however you want to refer to it as that has caused issues around the world that has taken lives there've been many throughout the 20th century killer epidemics is this, this um episode is
1: yep so i think that the one that most people are aware of would be the flu epidemic at the end of world war 1 which killed more people certainly than World War One and may even have killed more people than World War Two. So we're talking of somewhere of the order of fifty million people. So although war gets the reputation for killing people, it's actually diseases. And of course you go back in time and fleas that are on rats turn out to be the most deadliest weapon in the history of the world because of the way in which they spread diseases like bubonic plague, etc. So the big killers in this world come out of diseases rather than uh, guns or swords. Looking at the 20th century, we usually begin a survey looking at what was called Spanish flu. The way that these illnesses operate is that where something is first identified, that's how it gets linked. So you talk about a, a Hong Kong flu, or in this case, it's a Spanish flu. Apparently it goes back to June of 1918 when Martin Salazar who was uh, Spain's Inspector General of Health, said that there was a disease ravaging his country which was to be found nowhere else in Europe. Now, remember that World War I was underway, communications were not particularly good, and Spain thought they had a disease all to themselves. But in fact, we now think, because there's been so much research on it, that the disease may well have originated months earlier in the United States and carried across from the United States into Europe. Because of wartime censorship, you didn't get the free flow of information. Very different from today, right? With social media, everybody's got an opinion. Back in 1918, there was restrictions on the flow of information. Um, So although it's called Spanish flu, in fairness to Spain, that's where it was identified, but it's not necessarily where it uh, necessarily started. As I say, the suggestion has been that it may even have um, begun back in March of that year, before that June date, began in March of 1918 in Kansas, in the United States.
0: So did this turn out to be the regular flu, but they called it the Spanish flu, or was this a different strain in itself, Keith?
1: Clearly it was a different type of strain. Basically still a flu, which goes into the respiratory system. So that's the key factor in all of these illnesses that we're calling flus, that it attacks your breathing. And ultimately, that's a pretty gross way to die, but ultimately you choke because your lungs simply can't work. What's interesting about Spanish flu and the reason why you end up with all this continuing speculation about it is that normally flus wipe out the very young and the very old. So the very young have not been around long enough to acquire any natural immunity and the very old have usually got compromised immune systems because they are frail, probably smokers and whatever. Whereas this time around, the Spanish flu... Really hit hard amongst young athletic people. And their argument was that these were people who were born after a previous flu problem and so had not yet acquired the natural immunity that you will do with a flu. It's one of the issues that you as a parent need to think about. Are you raising your children <clears throat> in too much of a hygienic lifestyle? Should you have kids playing in the mud a lot more?
0: Well, this is the biggest criticism of parenthood in this particular generation, Keith, because the cleaning products are so good, people are so much more pedantic about what their kids are doing. Whereas back in the day, you kind of got the feeling that people were a bit more relaxed; that yeah. you were allowed to eat a bit of dirt. The cleaning products weren't there, so you'd you know you'd be crawling around in grime. You know, within yeah. reason. I'm not talking about you know having a filthy household, yeah. but. You were exposed to a lot more. Is that, that's one of the biggest... That's crispiness. one of the
1: issues that's coming up, I noticed, with medical specialists, that in trying to protect our children from the harms of the world, we're actually making them more vulnerable because we're not exposing them to all these uh, illnesses which they could pick up, just simply playing around with the mud and whatever. So getting back to Spanish flu, really weird, wiped out the people you would least expect to be killed and didn't have that much of an impact upon the older People that you would expect to to go in the event of uh, a flu. So continuing debate as to how it arose and even where it arose. Not it, well, it's certainly not in Spain. Uh, that's where it was identified because there's rather foolish statement from a <laughs> a minister who who said that it, it's a unique disease for Spain, whereas in fact, because of wartime censorship and other countries were at war people didn't get to hear about this uh, spreading flu. And I think also, in fairness, people would have had difficulty understanding such a huge number of people dying, uh, as was going to happen over the next uh, couple of years. When you say you're going to get more people killed by a flu than in World War One, that would have been incomprehensible to people at the time. And as I say, we think because of the problems with diagnosis, it may well be that the, uh, more people were cured even in more than World War II in this. So the Spanish flu is seen as the one that is um, that generates the most concern, and that's the worry that we've got. You know, it began somewhere, say, in a, a base in Kansas, in the middle of the United States, and then spread out around the world, and people were moving a great deal because we were deploying troops. So young men were particularly were being moved around between the Western Front and the United States, et cetera. Young men were being moved around. And so the worry we've got is that people are far more mobile today. And so people can uh, pick up diseases in one country and then head off to another one. This is what makes people so much more worried about the coronavirus, and we've already seen it. You know, you've got a senior health official in Iran who's come down with the very illness that he's been talking about. Now, it doesn't mean if you get it, you're going to die. That's an important point to bear in mind. And if the number of people actually die as percentage would be around, say, less than 5% at the moment. If it mutates, of course, all bets are off.
0: But this is the thing, and Keith, I was just having a conversation with friends about this on the weekend, actually, that... Um if you look at the numbers of people dying, is this just mass hysteria because, like, every flu season, there you know, we had a bad flu season a couple of years ago and hundreds of people died, thousands of people. But it's, is it within context is this as big a deal as everyone's saying it is?
1: It, well, it, well the, we just don't know. That, that, and I think that's what adds, adds to public anxiety, that we simply don't know how this is going to play out. One extreme, I guess, would be to say, look, um, the cases will peak in China and that gradually around the world we will see a reduction in numbers, particularly once we get an injection. Once the vaccine is worked out, we're fine. So that's that's the optimistic scenario. But at the same time, there's another scenario saying, what happens when it gets to a country like Indonesia? Indonesia, as we speak, still claims to be free entirely from the illness. No one believes the Indonesian claim. But it may be a reflection on their more limited health facilities, And people are presenting, but the symptoms are not being recognised, right? But what happens when you get overcrowded cities? So you think for the first time now in the history of the world, we have more people living in cities than living on the land. Uh, So you've got people living in overcrowded environments. Another example of this problem is TB, tuberculosis, which um, was pretty well eradicated in uh, more developed countries like the United States, as you know, in Australia, Australia, We're very concerned about TB. Anybody who's suspicious that they're coming here as a student has to be x-rayed. We need to check their lungs. In the United States, they let the guard down. They figured, oh, well, we haven't had any major problems with TB for a few decades. We don't need to get too worried about it. And the result is that TB is picking up now in the United States. It's a disease of poverty where you've got people living in crowded surroundings, breathing in each other's air, and they have compromised immune systems. So they're poor people. That makes them vulnerable to TB. TB is now found in 26 American states. So it is bouncing back. So that's the risk that you run, that you let your guard down and then the diseases can creep back. Public health has always got to be top of mind. It's interesting that President Trump is now seeking to have more money made available for fighting coronavirus. That's great. But In his budget that he tabled a few weeks ago to the US Congress, he actually reduced funding for international uh, cooperation in public health, like funding for the World Health Organization. Now you've got this crisis, suddenly you're scrambling, looking around, trying to find extra money. But we should be doing it as a top of mind activity all the time to make sure there is adequate funding. And sometimes the techniques that are involved, go back to the TB example, the examples are not that overwhelmingly sophisticated. So we have, in the case of TB now in the United States, DOT, Directly Observed Therapy. So let's assume that you have TB. You're put on a, a six-month course of a treatment. I'm the health worker. I will call at your house every day and watch you take your medicine. It's as simple as that. You take your medicine. I watch you do it. I don't let you put it away to one side. Mm. I watch you actually do it. After six months, it's gone. A lot of people will take medicines, antibiotics, and then get better and think, oh, I don't need to follow up with all the rest of the pills that have been sent to me. I'll just stop now. But, of course, what's happening is that the risk you run is that the disease that you're carrying is not completely eradicated and will actually bounce back with a resistance to the um Medicine that you've just been allocated. And thus you end up then with what are called super bugs. So these were bugs that were quite normal, but they have been able to exploit the fact that people have not taken their full range of treatment. And so they've been able to scrape by under the wire and they bounce back with more virulence.
0: You're listening to Global Truths with Dr Keith Suda. We're talking about killer epidemics this week, and the reason is because uh, coronavirus is still around, obviously, and scaring a lot of people. But it's not the very first pandemic to uh, wipe out members of the population or pose a threat to, I guess, international security in many ways, isn't it, Keith?
1: That's right. So the the risk, of course, is that you uh, taking a really pessimistic point of view, that the disease will just get worse and you might end up with a mass movement of people's You'll end up, obviously, with some people fleeing from one country to another but carrying the illness with them. So you have border security issues. Uh, You'll end up with increased tensions between governments and and their citizens. And there is the issue that we've raised in the past, particularly in China, that people have surrendered their political rights in the belief the government will protect them. If this crisis continues, there will come a point where people say the government is no longer honouring the social contract. Now, President Xi would say, look, I'm working very hard to do so. But if you still end up with that disease sweeping through the country, you will end up with people saying, well, this is what happens when you live within a closed society. Remember, China is the exception to the rule in terms of economic development. All societies, as they develop economically in our own region, say South Korea, Taiwan, the Philippines, Indonesia, they are all fascist dictatorships. But then as they got richer, they became more middle class and the middle class wanted to say in how the countries are being governed and they are now democracies. A similar development has taken place in China in the sense that people are richer now. You have an extensive middle class in China, a bigger middle class in China than in the United States. Um, so a flourishing middle class but they're not getting the political liberties that a middle-class person would expect. But they would say, well, we've surrendered some of those liberties because the government's going to protect us, it's going to maintain public order and good health. If the government fails to do that, then people will say, well, we can no longer trust the government. And it is very interesting that, because uh, I have connections with Chinese who are reading the social media, and there's a huge amount of, of speculation that's going on there and, <clears throat> you know, alarmist talk, et cetera. So there are real problems for the Chinese government. Remember that China has just shut down an entire city the size of New York, Wuhan, in order to try to contain it. Now, you can do that if you're running a dictatorship. You wouldn't be able to do that in New York. No, definitely not. And so the Chinese government is saying, look, we are doing our best. We've introduced these really strict measures to try to restrict the spread of the disease.
0: So then how worrying is this one when you compare it to things, Keith, like SARS or Ebola, for example? Because Ebola just seems like a much scarier proposition.
1: Yeah, Ebola is a hemorrhagic disease, so that's pretty gross as well. Ebola is named after the location in East Africa where it was um, found possibly be coming out of bats dropping. So it's a real warning about getting too close to animals. So Ebola is actually a location. A Guy called Preston, who wrote a very good book twenty years ago called "The Hot Zone," where he actually went to the cave where they think it all began. bit of a non-event, but he actually gets to it. I've ruined the book for you. Great. <laughs> <laughs> <Right. laughs> but it very interesting. He, he it was his book that really got me interested in this whole issue of public global public health. So the problem with Ebola is that it occurs in Africa and people ignore what goes on in Africa. But in an interdependent world, that's very risky. If you take the other really bad pandemic, so an epidemic is what goes on in one country. If that same illness goes into more countries, it becomes a pandemic. So in the case of um, AIDS, HIV is claimed to be the deadliest pandemic of the 20th century. And we assume that it arose out of Africa. Again, highly controversial uh, as to how it arose. It may be uh, HIV, the human immune virus, may well be linked to the simian one, SIV, which is what you find in monkeys. So did Africans, by eating monkeys or living too close to monkeys, pick up an illness which is in monkeys and then acquire it for themselves? If they're dying in isolation in Central Africa, they are not really causing a problem, tragedy for them, but they're not a global health issue. If we were quicker off the mark, we would probably have called this the Kinshasa disease. So the Kinshasa road runs across the middle of Central Africa from east to west, and, somewhere, and it cut through the rainforest. So that's how the disease moved out of Central Black Africa, the deepest Africa, as they call it, or whatever expression you want to use, it moved out of there and moved to the coastline and at some point jumped across to the United States. There was a lot of speculation that the American health uh, people had found the first patient who was actually working for a Canadian airline and was a gay person and took it into the United States. And and in the United States, HIV was seen as um, for homosexuals Haitians, which was a gay playground, and heroin addicts, heroin people being those who share needles and inject themselves. So um, that they, that was the earliest speculation around 1981. At least 30 million people have been killed just in the last decade of our first century, 21st century. Still, still, it's still a major killer. In Australia, we have done very well in combating it. There was, a, as you may remember, a controversial advertising program dealing with it. We operate needle exchanges, so that means that if you are an injecting drug user, you don't need to borrow somebody else's syringe. You can get a clean syringe, no questions asked. Uh, we also have safe injecting rooms as well, which is medically supervised, so if something goes wrong, there's somebody to look after you. Not that many. There's, that is, of course, highly controversial. And the gay community amongst its older members are well aware of what's going on. There is a risk, by the looks of it, of a pick-up amongst younger gays who think, oh, well, I can go back to being fairly irresponsible in my behaviour because the medical system will look after me. But overall, Australia has been safe. But, of course, it's very difficult to catch HIV, AIDS, that you can be with somebody sitting beside them, etc. You're not going to catch them. You've got to have that intimate exchange. Whereas if you're dealing with someone with a cold, as you may know, one person sneezes on a crowded train. And that's the worry with the coronavirus. We still don't know how it's moving around because the pattern of its spread is, is so unclear. So HIV, a terrible killer, but limited in certain community areas and difficult to get. And if HIV were left here on this table, it would be dead very quickly. Fresh air kills it. But we don't know about Corona. Uh, we know that in some of the other uh, problems that we've had in the past, like SARS, um, that it somehow gets embedded into carpets. So you think you've cleaned your hotel room, but in fact you may still have traces of SARS around. And that's the going to be the worry with the coronavirus. So on the one hand, the, yes, there is a lot of alarmist talk. Um, you've got people who are cancelling conferences uh, as you know, we are preventing people from coming from China to study at our universities. As we speak, that may change, of course, hopefully in the next few days. You've got people who are not flying uh, so often. Uh, so they are responding. On the other hand, we could be dealing with a rerun of the post-World War I flu epidemic. And so in which case we are talking not just about a few hundred here or there, but we are talking about millions of casualties.
0: So I guess uh, <clears throat> no way to predict what's going to happen. Keith, just watch this space. We'll probably have some updates in a few weeks. Absolutely. Global Truths was presented by Dr Keith Souter and me, Kate Mack. Produced by Matt Dwyer. Audio production by Darcy Thompson. Listener.